Hello and welcome to this week's episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today I am joined by Simon Smith. Simon, how are you doing? Hi, Farhan. Yeah, I'm having a really good day, thank you. Getting loads done. Really uh, sorting things good. out. Good stuff. So you're in the UK as well. How's the weather where you are right now? Because it's not the best where I am. <laughs> it's turning out to be an absolutely class- classic British summer in London. Yeah, I think we've had some some very good weather in June where it felt like the Costa del Sol, but July is privy to be very British because you can never be quite sure when it's going to rain. It might be sunny when you leave the house, it might be warm, but you need to take your raincoat, your umbrella, because it's probably going to rain at some point during the day. Yeah, I mean, that's what literally happened to me today. At lunchtime, I went for a walk about 20, 25 minutes. And when I was about three minutes, like, it was cloudy, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it didn't rain at all. And the, it wasn't really cold either or breezy, but it was all right. And about two, three minutes before I got home, it literally just started raining, like just spitting it down. I, I was just thinking, luckily, it was literally when I was two, three minutes around the corner. And yeah, I got a bit wet, but it could have been worse. I could have been halfway through and had to walk 10, 15 minutes. But yeah, it, it is that typical British weather. So good old England. You've got to love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you founded Excalibur.fm. You know, what is Excalibur for, you know, the audience? Excalibur.fm is a Web3 audio platform. So we're enabling audio creators to upload their content, whether that be podcasts or music or even audiobooks, can be uploaded onto the platform. And an NFT is minted of their content when they create it. So normally NFTs are associated with JPEGs. A JPEG is basically a digital file. So the audio file, the MP3 that a creator has created, can be hashed into the blockchain and turned into an NFT in exactly the same way as a JPEG would be. So it gives that unique registration of that audio file, which can be associated with the creator's wallet address. And then the audience, when they listen to that content for free, have the option to make a contribution to the creator by minting a copy of that NFT using cryptocurrency. And then they can have a copy of that content in their wallet as a unique file that uh, only they own. And uh, they could potentially give that to somebody else in the future, which is very different to buying something on Amazon or Audible, where uh, you don't really own it. You can't really give it away to somebody else. And if the central uh, platform that holds that content decides to shut it down at some point, then you won't have access to what you paid for anymore. So it's a kind of more kind of real uh, ownership model that we can achieve with the decentralized media. Okay. And what sort of blockchain are you using for that? We're on Solana. Yeah, we chose Solana because it has very low transaction fees. And we believe that micropayments is one of the key abilities. Or one of the key use cases of crypto is the ability for people to pay each other in a peer-to-peer way without incurring high transaction fees. One of the intentions with our platform is that most of the money that's paid, almost all of it, in fact, should go through to the creator. So once our platform is getting some real traction, we will be getting a 5% transaction fee. Right now, we are uh, allowing all the money to go through to the creator, less the very small transaction that the Solana network takes for storing and transacting data. Okay, and obviously, you know, you're using Solana. I mean, did you ever think about using, you know, the Ethereum blockchain? Because obviously that's, I, I would say that's what the most popular one currently. I know Solana is growing a lot due to the flexibility and, you know, the fees. 
We looked at Ethereum, yeah. Um, at the point where we were getting started, we were in the, the throes of the bull market of 2021. And Ethereum transactions were incredibly expensive. So we felt that was never really going to deliver on the use case of, of what we wanted to do. We wanted it to be low transaction fees, low cost minting. So yeah, Ethereum wasn't appropriate for us. We decided it had to be something a bit more advanced, a bit more low cost. And Solana was the, uh, the favorite one for that one. Okay. And do you have an app right now? Because obviously that's one of the things that you know a lot of people you know gravitate to is an app. So what's the app situation? Yep. We have a, a web app. Yeah, you can install a web app on your phone without going through the uh, app store. Because of course the app store is completely centralized. They control everything that goes in there. So if you want to have a decentralized bit of software, then you've got websites. Websites still very functional and a web app is effectively making a website work exactly like an app would on your phone without having to pay 30% to the app store for everything you want to transact whilst using it. Okay. I mean, there's a few you know questions I've got around that. The first is, yes, it's a, you know, a web app, but do you feel like you might be limiting your potential, you know, base of users? Because, you know, the thing that most people will do when they want something on their phone, let's, let's, some type of application is they'll go to the App Store, Google Play Store. That's their first, you know, point of call. Like, I find most people, at least not right now, they're not that fussed about you know, oh, it being a web app per se. I know web apps have got really good to the point where it's hard to distinguish, but their first point of call is the app store. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know we all like to use apps. You know, they are very convenient. Um, at some point, mm -hmm. we have an app, um, and the, the way that would function is if you want to purchase the Even NFT. the browser itself, it, it, you know, is an app on your phone. It is, that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in practice, the browser is an app, but Apple doesn't have sufficient control over that browser that they only allow you to use websites that will pay them 30% of any transactions that you do on the website whilst in that browser. For now, <laughs> I bet they're looking into it. I mean, certainly what's gone on with Damas in the last few weeks has been interesting because they got kicked off of the App Store because... They were enabling lightning transactions. And I think, you know, previously that's always just been tips, but I think Apple have spotted the fact that there's now NFTs on on the Bitcoin blockchain. So they may consider that people might be buying NFTs through Damas. So there was a bit of a hoo-ha over that one, but it seems like Damas is back on the App Store now and zaps are possible. So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how this one's gonna pan out because if Apple pushed too hard on it, then they're literally gonna push everyone down the web app route. Once people get used to using web apps, they might just find they don't need the Apple App Store at all. Yeah, I mean, my pushback on that is people, unfortunately, do like convenience. And it's, it, you know, it's like, you know, you look at social media and how people have, you know, it's become more public knowledge that, you know, social media companies, so all tech companies in general, but let's say you do we just look at social media companies where a lot of information is being freely shared, text, video, audio, pictures, all of that sort of stuff. They are using that for third-party marketing. They are making money off it. A lot of the content they are, you know, owning effectively, you know, that's what you're agreeing to. And even though I come across people all the time moaning about it, very rarely do I come across a person that says, I don't like it. 
they, I don't want them to have my data. I've deleted Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, you know, all these social media, you know, platforms. I find people moaning about it, but never deleting it. Like I'll see someone moan about, you know, Apple, they're taking 30%, even if they're not a developer per se, and really doesn't affect them in terms of, because they're just buying, you know, the uh, you know in-app purchases or the apps or whatever, and uh, but they'll moan about it. Yet yeah, they'll let's say not have an iPhone, but then they might have a MacBook. But if they don't have a MacBook, they'll have a a PlayStation or an Xbox where there's kind of a similar model. And it's like it, I find people are picking and choosing. So I, I mean, for me, I hope these technologies like Web three, blockchain you know, real proper use cases of NFTs do come into effect. I just feel like there's just so much barrier to entry right now. Because again, I'm one of those people that has Signal as a messaging platform, but I have like one or two people on there because everyone else don't want to, doesn't want to use it. They want yeah. to use WhatsApp. So it's either I have two people that I can contact <laughs> and yeah. I cut out every single person, and that includes my wife as well. <laughs> I would have to go every, you know, her out as well, and like parents, or I, you know, do have those other services. And then again, it's that thing. If the other major applications are sticking to the app store and other conventional means, yes, people may have like some sort of, you know, web app or web app store approach. Because I remember a few years, but about ten years ago, in the early days of the app store. I envisioned a web-based application store to be able to easily download, you know, apps from the web, put them on your phone, you know, access them because web websites were getting very smooth, were starting to get very smooth, almost like, you know, apps back then. That was before, you know, progressive web apps. But, uh, you know, I would love for something like that to happen. It is just that thing of will people go away from it? And again, the other side I want to talk about is, yes, Apple take 30%, but I think they do provide quite a lot of service. Like, you know, it's all generally always up and running. They, you know, handle updates very well. They have some sort of, you know, curated list for you or, you know, categories. That's like the other thing. Like, how do you think web apps can, you know, counter that? Because yeah, if you go to different websites a lot of to download it, it's it's not the best. Yeah, no, a lot of questions there. Um, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, we have all given away um, our privacy for convenience. Um, this has been happening, you know, really since computers began. Ultimately, they're making our lives more convenient. Uh, mm-hmm. But in order to use um, applications, we are giving away our data. I mean, this probably wasn't so much the case with Web1 prior to the year 2000. Most websites were read. You know, we were read-only. It was content that people could publish. And if you were a developer or you knew a developer, you could pay a developer, you could publish yourself in a way that you were never really able to before. If you wanted to publish previously, you had to go through publishing houses, the people that owned the newspapers or the radio TV stations. So, you know, Web1 Web was very much more democratic than what came before. But the problem they had was with monetization. Um, you know, the dot-com boom was a very big boom. A lot of people made a lot of money, a lot lost a lot of money. But the thing really crashed because these websites just didn't have a way of making money. So 
that was the trade-off that happened with pay-per-click. Once pay-per-click really got functional as a technology where you, you your data could be passed through to the next website so the advertiser would know who it was was clicking and how many people clicked and they could really start to track the user behavior. That's what really uh, created real value on the internet because people gave away their data, the advertisers used it to target them, they increased their return on investment. And so companies that wanted to make money, money on the internet, they figured out what they had to do was gather as much user data as possible, as much, de- as much detail on people as possible and sell it to the highest bidder. That's what the internet became in order to monetize. But I mean, that's that's the trade-off that we've all kind of accepted. And in many ways, the bug in the system is actually the human beings because we could have refused. You know, we could have said, we will not give our data away no matter how much fun it is to share our photos with people on the other side of the world and stay in contact with people. We, we're going to absolutely refuse to enter into this big brother state, but we didn't. We all got seduced into it. You know, we all gave our data away. We're all using WhatsApp. I mean, I've got Signal. You know, we use Signal as a, as a company to communicate with each other. But yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the, the density of population are on WhatsApp. So you know you can contact everyone on WhatsApp. So you use WhatsApp. Or Messenger or something, you know, or, yeah. you know, one of these other, I mean, it's all Facebook, you know, technically. So, and then yeah, it's, Zuckerberg, yeah. and he's, he's trying to take over Twitter now as well by creating a, a very similar competitor and, and leveraging the Instagram user base. A lot of people would just go on threads because yeah. they don't. I'm surprised it, it took them that long to, to try and do it. He's waited his time out, you know, he waited for Elon yeah. Musk to go in there and totally overpay for it and then mess things up. And, and now he's, a, he's launching yeah. his competitor at just the right time. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's interesting because, I mean, I, I believe in Web3. I believe that now that we do have a native payment system for the internet and Bitcoin and potentially other coins as well, we have a situation where we can monetize more effectively and that the reality is it may not be as convenient and certainly... Excalibur probably isn't as convenient to use as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, you know, it's it's another thing that people have got to figure out how to use. And even me, I mean, I'm I'm somebody who's experienced in technology, but I still find a bit of you know a bit of kind of lethargy there in actually picking up a new app and, and taking the time to learn how to use it. So uh, it, it's going to be a struggle to get this new technology to the point where people find it as easy to use as the Web2 applications. But I do think in the long run, the benefit is going to be there. I do think over time, people are going to be more uncomfortable with the level of uh, intrusion that they're actually getting with Web2 applications. And ultimately, yeah, we do sign up to it, but we can choose to opt out. We can choose to do exactly as you described there earlier on and, and say, right, I'm not going to use any Facebook applications and I'm only going to use the open source stuff, you know, with Signal or Simplex. The one that's come out recently is Noster, which is a social layer for Web3, which is built on top of Bitcoin Lightning. There's lots of applications popping up there now, which people can transfer their profile from one application to another. Anything that's built on Noster is composable, so you can take your data between those different applications. So, I mean, I think in, in reality, we're at a very early stage of this process. It's going to be a while before... We're getting, you know, really strong traction and we are a real competitor to the existing applications, to the Web2 applications. So I'm I'm confident that there will be real value there, but we're at the process of testing the tools, figuring out where the opportunities are, figuring out the formula that really works for the use cases. You know, the use cases are coming through, but we've got to figure out how we can monetize those, how we can get users to interact. 
and feel like they are part owners of that platform and they want to then help recruit people, help bring good content onto the platform. I mean, one of the things you said there was that Apple um, has, you know, they're providing a curation service in terms of suggesting apps that come through to you. But there's an incentive system there. You know, they are a company and their job is to maximize profits for their shareholders. So they will be naturally inclined to promote applications to you that have been proven to deliver the most revenue to them. So they're they're Mm -hmm. monitoring which apps people are spending most money on. In reality, that's probably the most addictive apps, not the ones that offer the best user experience. Those are the ones that, you know, the the addictive ones that bring in the most money to Apple will be the ones that they're promoting to us. So, you know, curation could be better for sure. I think, you know, this kind of pattern exists throughout social media online. I mean, YouTube, they have a lot of videos on there, the ones that are best quality probably don't actually deliver much advertising revenue to them, but there's some out there that really get you hooked, keep you in a, a state where you might want to buy something, you might be influenced by the advertising. And those are the ones that they're putting to the top of the list. So I think there's an opportunity there that the users can really take control again of the content that they're listening to or that they're viewing, and they can be part of managing a curation process by choosing to make a donation to a creator in the style of a pay-as-you-go Patreon, they really have the opportunity to actually do a very strong vote with their money as to what they think is good. They don't need to go onto the Patreon website. They don't need to put the credit card details and name and address in. And they don't need to enter into a subscription. They could just connect their crypto wallet and be pseudonymous and connect to the uh, application and uh, donate some of their hard-earned cryptocurrency, which in many cases, certainly the case of Solana, is probably worth a whole lot less than it used to be. Uh, But yeah, they can donate that through to the creator and they can provide some funds that help perpetuate future production. If they like the content, why not donate to it and uh, keep it going? Yeah, I mean, indeed. So, you know, let's say if we get past the hurdles of... Let's say not using something like the App Store. Everyone's using progressive, you know, web apps. That's all good. Like, why would somebody? I can understand it from the content creator's point of view, but why would somebody want to use something like Excalibur and Excalibur specifically over Spotify, over Google Podcasts, over those other platforms? Like, what's the true incentive for the the user that's going to listen to these podcasts and you know potentially even music as well? Yeah, I mean, um, for the creator, it's the opportunity that they can own their content. So they're uploading uh, the, the fact that it's hashed onto the blockchain at that point in time. It creates a unique reference, which actually serves as a proof that it's their content. Um, they can reach out directly to their audience um, on Spotify or YouTube. Their advertising or share of the advertising revenue probably is uh, fractions of one cent per stream. So people that even get hundreds of thousands of streams on those platforms quite often. They get less than a dollar in total revenue. It's quite shocking. But if you're a creator that maybe has your 1,000 true fans and you send them a link and you say, okay, this is a new technology, you can mint a copy of this NFT that I've just sent you. And this is my latest podcast. You can listen to it here for free. You don't have to pay anything if you don't want to. There's no ads on this one. That's the deal. We're saying we're not going to put advertising on it. Rather than uh, be... uh, you know, have your your time wasted with the um, with the advertising. We're going to give you the option 
to pay for the content by minting the NFT. And if you do that, you get that token that's held in your wallet that you can keep forever, or you can sell it. If there's at some point in the future, perhaps if what we create becomes a limited edition, it may be something you might even be able to sell for more than you created for, than you, than you bought it for. But um, you will be able to access the group chat room that's based on that podcast, and you'll be able to communicate with the other people that like the content enough to mint that NFT as well. So you're actually joining a community that exists around that content, and you have the opportunity to find other people that you perhaps have something in common with because they like that content as well. So for creators, it's ownership, it's community building, it's better monetization. It's the opportunity to distribute directly. I mean, albeit they will be using those Web2 uh, channels to deliver the content to their, their customers. They'll, they'll take the link and they might put it on WhatsApp groups or on LinkedIn or post it out on Twitter. And then when people click through, they're on Excalibur, they're listening on Excalibur. On the same page as they're listening, they can mint that NFT. If they want to make a smaller donation, they can do that on the page as well. They can even donate with uh, with Bitcoin if they want to. Okay. And, you know, you're heavily into the Web3 space. You know, what's your you know background? What did you do, you know, before doing this? And what were your motivations, you know, getting into this? Cause, because you're not, again, I don't mean any offense, but you, you know, you're not young. You're not like 20 years old where your first job can potentially be in the web free space. So you you know, you must have done something yeah. before web free. So. I may I may be a little bit over the age of twenty. You could you could be right about that one. My uh my my working life has been very much um straddling technology and finance. So in many ways blockchain technology is really the ideal space for me. But yeah I studied economics, uh, came out of university in the nineties. That probably gives you a clue as how old I am. Um, that was a big recession, so working in finance at that point was very difficult. Managed to land a job uh, in technology, demonstrated I was very good at that, and ended up being a developer. So yeah, I was developing Oracle databases, worked for a bank, worked for a university. Still had a strong interest in finance, so in my spare time, I started trading uh, on the spread bet markets in house prices, uh, trying to predict where the future of house prices were going to go in 2002, that was an interesting time because many people thought they would crash at that point and they continued to go upwards. So had some really good gains on that and then made enough money that I could go and become a, a full-time investor and trader. So I left my job and started doing trading full-time and also did startup tech investments on the side. So that's angel investments. I actually started doing that the year before Dragon's Den started on TV. So I had... Uh, quite a long experience there of getting involved in tech startups, providing funding, doing the due diligence, trying to figure out which ones had the opportunity to do well, and which ones might not succeed. And many, many startups don't succeed. That's a, that's a reality. So you have to be prepared to mm-hmm. take some losses. But yeah, I mean, that, that led me into the world of crypto in 2013, started buying Bitcoin. Didn't really do as much due diligence on it as I should have done. Yeah, it was a bit of a kind of wing it. You know, you could see that there was limited supply and it was probably going to go up by more. But had I really sat down and done the research into Bitcoin at that point, I probably would have really valued the time I spent on that because I've only really done the work. Put a lot more into it. <laughs> the last few years, I've really kind of gone down the rabbit hole. And now I'm very much a, a fan of Bitcoin and I do see it as a future currency for the planet. Um, with the Lightning Network, it's now been made fast and cheap. There's all kinds of applications being 
built on top of Bitcoin Lightning now. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see a, a total mushrooming of the space as people find that there's so many good things that they can do. The fact that they can make these small payments on a peer-to-peer basis, rewarding each other for their creative work is going to create a very strongly vibrant, creative, almost a renaissance, I think, of, of creative technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Bitcoin, especially investing back then was... It's one of those things that when you look back, you think that was probably one of the easiest things in the last 20, 30, or 40 years. Because I know people talk about the, you know, the dot-com bubble and, you know, raising funds and that. I, like, there's no way, again, I wasn't around as an adult then that I don't think raising funds then, you know, pre the dot-com bubble was as easy as putting, a, you know, $1,000 into Bitcoin and just holding onto it for five seven years <laughs> like the obviously again you don't know but it is that crazy thing of you know and the thing is there's so many people we won't even know their names that invested in it probably just on a whim didn't touch it still have access to it uh, and may have sold out you know even now or a few years ago back in like 2017 when the prices i think bitcoin was hitting about almost seventy thousand dollars and I think they I wonder what the stat is of if you walked through London or New York City, how many Bitcoin millionaires you would come across within a few days, but you wouldn't know. <laughs> I bet there's a few. I think the thing is that when you say yeah, putting some money in, into Bitcoin and sitting on it for five years, that's actually not that easy. You know, in, in reality, the price of Bitcoin is very volatile, and mm-hmm. you know, when you made a bit of money, it's very tempting to cash out and go and buy that Xbox you wanted to buy or buy that car mm-hmm. that you wanted. To huddle is very, it is very hard. Obviously, it is a, you know, it yeah, is a yeah. hindsight thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can all look back and say, if anyone bought Bitcoin in 2010, you know, but we didn't know back then. I mean, even when I bought it in 2013, yeah. I didn't really understand it. You know, and back then the, the wallets didn't tell you to withdraw your private keys. You know, and the wallets, many of them were honeypots, you know, they were Ponzi schemes. They, they were, you know, mm. kind of places where they were storing your keys and they would wait until there was enough money had gone through that wallet and they would just steal the lot. You know, there was many, many situations like that. So really to kind of, to really buy Bitcoin and hold it and have confidence that you could keep it, you would have to really do the deep dive into the technology and figure out how to self-custody and to, to hold on to it. You know, you, you'd have to have very strong nerve, you know, to not think, okay, this thing, because of course, Back then, we all thought they were going to van it. You know, I mean, there's people say this now, like, you know, 10 years ago, it looked so much like the government would never allow this to happen. And yet here we are, you know, in 2023, and you've got the SEC losing court cases against Ripple. I mean, I've got to say Ripple to me looks like a total scam. And yet the SEC are losing a court case against them. Um, you know, Bitcoin ETF is now coming with BlackRock, you know, that they are the biggest fund manager in the world, so close to the American government. And they're advocating Bitcoin. You know, back in 2017, Larry Fink was saying it was a index of money laundering. And now he's mm. saying Bitcoin is potentially better than gold. You know, this is a total turnaround. You know, this technology is really maturing and it's being accepted in a way that people never imagined. I mean, it, it really is surprising. It, you know, if, if the... We've always thought there would be a phase where they would fight us, but if that, all that was was just taking um, Coinbase and Binance to court, you know, if that's all it was, then you know it's going to be an easy one to win because fundamentally we have a much better technology than any money we've ever ever had before. 
But do you think it's a matter of them genuinely coming around and now being on the side of crypto blockchain, seeing the value of these technologies, or is it more they was you know part of the old, you know what you call the old guard? They didn't want something new every you know this platform or you know so something like with blockchain, crypto, or something else, and they tried to basically shut it down. As they probably have other technologies and they've succeeded, didn't work, and now they're like we can still get maybe a handle on it because we're BlackRock, we're the government, you know, we're still the de facto power, you know, in control right now. Let's just get hold of it. Let's, you know, whether that's creating our own coin and making everyone use that, but it's basically they're, they're, like they're using the dollar, but they're not using the dollar, but they are, you know, in a way, but we're, we're calling something else and we're saying it's decentralized, but we're basically controlling it. And, you know, the, what's your take on that? Did you think there's really, you know, things have actually changed or it's just them realizing this train can't be stopped, so might as well get into first class while we can? Yeah, I think there's 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 a number of different things there. I mean, We've all seen China try to ban Bitcoin. You know, I think they announced, announced at least five times that I've heard that they're banning Bitcoin, and yet there's still... It feels like they're, they're always doing it. I feel like I just hear China's banning it. I'm like, again? It's still there. You know, it's still there in China, and China is the most authoritarian state in the world, and they've not succeeded in banning crypto, not succeeded in, in banning Bitcoin. I mean, you can go and sue you know, the, the head of Ripple if you want to, but you can't sue... Bitcoin, you know, it's open source code that mm. a wide network of people are choosing to install on their computers and they're choosing to respect the, the system as a way of exchanging value with each other. You can't compete with that. You know, it's, it, the, the system is designed to be something that cannot be taken down by the authorities. And, you know, whoever created it at the beginning, and obviously the, the group of cypherpunks there with Adam Back and Nick Zabo and Hal Finney, we're all working together to, to try to create something like this, but that anonymous personal group of people, Satoshi Nakamoto, actually created it. They solved the double spending problem. They created the software that is still functioning to this day. You know, I mean, there's been some minor changes to it, but function, fun, effectively the, the original rule set is, is still there. You can't have more than 21 million. Anyone that tries to change the code to say there's 21 million is simply running a system that nobody else is going to participate in. So it's it's very powerful technology. It's designed to be something that can't be shut down. But in, in reality, governments never really succeed in banning anything. I mean, we all know about prohibition in America when they tried to ban that. They simply mm. created a huge profitable business for the organized crime rings in America. You know, it boosted the amount of crime that happened. It made governing things much, much harder. So ultimately, they had to give up. So... There's some things they just have to recognize that it's beyond their control. They can't really ban it. And uh, I think that's probably what's happened with Bitcoin, where they thought, you know, if you can't beat them, you've got to join them. Yeah, because obviously, you know, with the you know alcohol, with the prohibition or anything else, really, it just gets to a point where they say, you know, it, if it, uh, it's kind of like how drugs are now. I feel like in 20, 30 years or 50 years, we'll look back at a society and we'll look at how you know, criminalization and then decriminalization of certain drugs like, you know, marijuana, you know, how that went down and see it similar to, you know, prohibition almost where, you know, they try to, you know, ban it, make it, you know, illegal, but it, it just got so widespread and so much support behind it that they're like, we might as well tax it. Because once it's legal and you're, you, 
you're you know companies are selling it the that that you know the, they're selling it to a good you know standard whatever the product is and you you know you, obviously if you go into a pharmacy and buy it let's say you you don't feel in danger compared to going into an alleyway with drugs for example and probably saying with you know alcohol back in prohibition i wasn't around then i'm not that old but i'm sure people got hurt in alleyways and you're you know buying it from people because you know frankly you've obviously got nefarious you know characters that are within that you know scene but you know selling it over the counter you're getting the government's getting taxed at so many different levels you know vat in the uk you'll you'll be getting tax from you know the production of it the distribution of you know all of that stuff it just gets to a point where the government just says you know what it's easier just to have the tax have the money not spend the money on you know policing it as much because the big because once the big companies can legally get involved they'll basically eliminate the smaller drug dealers for the pure fact they they're just big <laughs> like the, the, the small guys won't won't compete with them you know to big pharma for example definitely yeah that's it yeah i mean yeah. you know the, the quality just the quality of drugs itself you know if you, if people are getting it legally they're getting a better quality product you know and that's that's probably better mm-hmm. for people it is you know i mean yeah. i i don't i don't um suggest that anyone listening should should take drugs but in practice i think if people do choose to take, take drugs, then the fact that they're illegal doesn't stop them, particularly young people. The fact that they're illegal sometimes makes it more exciting. Essentially, they're more likely to do it because they want to do something rebellious. So, yeah, yeah I think legalisation is probably the way forward for that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think, you know, for the Portugal, that legalised, like, every drug. Uh, and they, I think, like, 10 or so years ago, and they announced, I mean, not announced, they noticed a bunch of, you know, just generally positive trends in, you know, certain areas of the society that they didn't directly think would be affected. So I think there is some merit in it. Obviously, you don't want, you know, people in school or standing outside of school, you know, <laughs> you know, snorting crack or, you know, having marijuana or anything like that. Absolutely. But, no. you know, it, it, but again, it, it, it doesn't stand them drinking alcohol either, like in the world environment. Like it's got to a point where, alcohol though legal you know if you're just freely drinking it on the streets especially in certain areas like you'll get told off like the police will come so the if you could get to that level where it is very much okay you stick to yourself then i think the government will be like we might just let it happen because it's we're gonna get you know tax on it plus if they're effectively not harming anyone you know, we ain't going to get blamed or nobody's going to get blamed for it. We just have a few people moan, but that's it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's the way we're going to go in, in, in practice. I mean, governments have a lot of things to deal with these days. And let's face it, they've lost the war on drugs, haven't they? You know, it, it totally failed. Yeah. They, they failed. They failed to wipe it out. They failed to stop it getting in. Society has moved to the point where it's it's seen as being much more of a mainstream thing than it ever was before. So, yeah, I think the government has to adjust accordingly. You know, as I say, I still don't recommend anyone take any drugs if they're listening. Um, but I think the government has to be realistic about what they can achieve in this scenario. And, um, yeah, there's parallels there for Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's a new thing. In reality, it's not really harming anyone. A lot of people make the complaint about the energy that's used in the mining of Bitcoin. But it uses far less than air conditioning systems, far less than the existing banking system. 
you know, and it is actually providing utility. I think that's the mistake that's made when people do say, oh, Bitcoin is a waste of electricity or it's damaging the environment. I think they're, they're not actually understanding that there is a real use case there. It is a form of money that's better than any form of money we've ever had before. And if we choose to stop using it or even ban it because we're concerned about 0.4% of the world's electricity being used in, in creating Bitcoin and in securing the network and processing the transactions, then that would be incredibly short-sighted. And I think humanity would be missing out on an amazing new technology. In, in reality, what would happen was, would be a geographical arbitrage. People that, uh, countries that banned it would just find that the startups and the people that want to use Bitcoin would go to other countries. So they would, they would be missing out. They would be going into the dark ages, whilst other con- other countries are ex- ex- experiencing the new technology and becoming the forefront of development. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, the thing with that side of, you know, when people are talking about, because I've had that argument, you know, in front of me before from people that, you know, it's using so much electricity, so much. And like you're saying, you know, when you compare it to, let's say, conventional banking systems and other, you know, because when the media talks about it's using X amount of electricity, they will say, you know, it's using X amount of dollars or it's the equivalent of X amount of homes per week, per month. And when you see the numbers like that, you start to think, "Mm, you know, it's a bit high. But like you said, it's not that high when you compare it to other things. And some people might use the argument, it's not fully scaled up to, you know, the whole world yet. But again, my counter argument to that is that doesn't happen overnight. That takes time. And there's innovations that occur when something scales up that, you know, whether it's the electricity usage, whether it's, you know, it just getting faster or, you know, you know, the chips or the hardware just getting better and more efficient, whatever it is, it, I, it's one of the things that it kind of just resolves itself. Obviously, there are people resolving it because there's an incentive within industry and they're, they're the companies that will survive, but it kind of just resolves itself. <laughs> That's one of those things. It's like PayPal in the early days, they gave money to people to sign up. That's clearly not a scalable model, but they did it <laughs> early on to get to a point where they were large enough. And then afterwards, you know, the network effect kicked in and you see yeah. with companies, you know, you see with Amazon, they um, their returns policy is still amazing compared to most other companies, but how it was like five to 10 years ago where they were literally send you the money i remember returning stuff i would get the money whilst i was on the phone doing the return make sure the money's in my account and then i'll put the phone down and then i'll be like yeah i'll ship it when i you know when i want to that's obviously not a scalable you know customer service model up to the level that they've got today but it didn't have to be they all they they, they just figure other things out to you know make it scale and obviously you know they reduce the customer service but they add other stuff into prime and whatnot that makes you think you know what customer service ain't as good as it used to be but i've got i've got all these benefits in prime i've got all these other benefits as a part of amazon so yeah it's one of those things that because it takes time to scale up i've never been worried about that you know the electricity usage side of it i think there's definitely some money to be made and business opportunities in that area of bitcoin and blockchain and crypto compared to some of the other areas that people are always looking at but i don't it, to me it's not a concern like it scales up 
things things will get solved. Somebody will solve it because there's an incentive to to solve it. This is yeah, it's it's such a thing that, that the media have gotten hold of this idea of the electricity usage. But I think like a lot of things in Bitcoin, it's actually solved with education. I mean, a few years ago, I was probably saying, oh yeah, Bitcoin uses too much electricity. Maybe we should look at these other proof of stake coins, you know, because they're using less less electricity. They're more efficient. Maybe that's a good idea. Once you've really taken the time to educate yourself and you really understand how the Bitcoin mining process works, how the proof of work system provides a real secure store of value in the way that no other cryptocurrency does. And certainly in a way that the uh, the pound sterling or the US dollar, certainly they don't offer a real long term store of value. And we can all see that in the depletion of our uh, our spending power that we were experiencing in the last couple of years with with these fiat currencies. Bitcoin is a strong store of value because it's difficult to make, because it costs energy to make it. That's what demonstrates that it's a store of value. That's what means it holds its value, just like gold holds its value because it requires time and energy to create gold. So it's one of the core features of Bitcoin is that it requires energy to make it. But of course, the um, miners that are out there, if they're paying retail price for electricity, then there's so much competition out there between the miners that anyone that's paying retail price, they're actually losing money because there's other people out there that have got to sort out waste energy or stranded energy where people can't bring it to a, a civilized area. And they're using that electricity. You know, they're fixing up a, a satellite internet. They're generating electricity from waste gas and oil mines or hydropower pl- pl- places that are so far away from civilizations they can't really practically, practically be used. What the whole thing has become is an incentive system to find cheaper, more renewable forms of electricity. So Bitcoin is funding the development of new renewable sources because they know once it's created, there will be a customer there that will pay money for that electricity. Even before they can put the cables in to get it through to a civilization, they know they can use that electricity once it's running. So it really has become something quite the opposite of a waste of electricity or a damaging thing for the environment. It's actually becoming a real positive thing for the environment. And there's there's people out there, if you spend your time looking around the internet, you'll find environmental campaigners that are actually advocating Bitcoin because they've taken the time to understand how this incentive system really works. Oh, yeah. It is one of those things that, one, you need education of to understand what these figures mean and plus the other thing is media has an incentive that's the same with you know because you get a lot of youtube even youtubers that are a bit more scientific based in their content they have a you know an incentive to promote content that may make you feel negative towards some sort of technology because they get views and they get views and that makes them, you know, add revenue. Again, nothing wrong with that, but just acknowledge the fact that, you know, Apple's probably not going to come out and say Android is the best, you know, OS, mobile OS in the world. <laughs> like, it's it, there's an incentive for Apple to, you know, put down Android, to shit on Android. You know, obviously, they'll never probably do it full on directly, but they'll do it in a roundabout way. Do you remember those ads back in the day of, you know, the Apple versus, you know, the Mac versus the window ads? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, obviously, obviously, they, they were pretty in your face. But, again, you're not going to see Tim Cook, you know, in, in an interview, you know, star, you know, 
pissing on Bill Gates and Satya Nadella and you know the, all those other guys over at Microsoft and start talking bad about you know Microsoft phones and even though that was a failure for them, that's not gonna you know happen. But you got to you know acknowledge that like you know the media is going to you know create these sensational articles. Never do I ever come across an article very rare that say you know there's this new technology. It could be amazing. Don't we personally do not one hundred percent understand or know how it's going to pan out? But it's interesting. Take a look. Like, <laughs> do you ever see an article like that? Yeah, no, you're right. Everyone loves a doom story. You know, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, that's what, over the top positive story. That's not correct as well. It's engagement. You know, it keeps the engagement, doesn't it? And really, the kind of polarization yeah. when they say, "Oh, this is Bitcoin. It's bad." You know, it it it, it does. It sells newspapers sells ad ad space doesn't it that's basically what it is really oh yeah so you know as an an investor uh, what because you mentioned you, you invested in some tech companies startups were there ever any companies that if you mentioned them like people would know are there any like notable companies there plus also on top of that you know what tips would you give to a startup looking to raise funds what's important there was no real household household names. The ones that I succeeded with um, were still relatively small when they sold those companies. But they usually started with just one person with an idea. So there was still a good uplift in terms of value. You know, if you get to the point where you've got maybe 10 million in sales and um, a number of staff working for you, when there was one classic one where it was a company that created uh, printer ink from old car tires, they grind up old car tires and turn that into printer ink, you know, the OEM printer ink for the printers. So. Yeah, we managed to sell that business and uh, and got a good price for it to an American buyer that wanted to have the capacity for their business in the UK. Um, it was a long time coming. That took nine years to get there. So uh, slightly painful in terms of waiting to actually get any real liquidity out. And that's one of the, the biggest problems with startups is that it is a very illiquid business. And you do have to wait quite some time, quite often, before you can actually release the, uh, the money that you've made on paper. But yeah, for entrepreneurs that are looking to raise money, I would say certainly in the UK, you're in a strong position if you can fit within the uh, the, the rules of the EIS scheme and your investors can get some uh, tax back on their investment. But you probably would be wanting to try and find the investors that really believe in what you're doing, where they really understand uh, the, the problem that you're trying to solve and where they appreciate your commitment your work the tenacity that you're applying to the project that's what investors really want to see is hard-working people that are passionate about what they're doing and will have the staying power to go through thick and thin because inevitably in the startup world you're going to be encountering problems there will be brick walls that you will have to climb over there'll be problems that will look unsolvable and you'll have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to solve them so that's that's your job as a startup entrepreneur is to deal with problems and solve problems. And um, for a, if, if you are presenting to investors, I would say try to keep your first pitch as short as possible. More than about five minutes is too long. But what you're really trying to do is to bait their appetite and get a few key facts, figures, get the real sense of what the business does across to them in that short time. And then if they are interested, they'll come and follow up and ask you some questions and find out more. And then, yeah, it's really just a case of trying to negotiate a good deal, trying to uh, espouse the benefits of what you're doing and how they can benefit by working with you. And, yeah, try to get a, a range of different investors from different 
backgrounds that can maybe contribute something. I certainly wouldn't rely upon them to give a full-time commitment, but advice, experience, as well as the money can be useful. Always take things with a pinch of salt. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, they'll be there, they'll be on board with you. If you have a good connection with them, they could potentially be a very good sounding board in a way that you won't have with your staff. You know, ultimately when you're the boss, the staff are the staff and they have different agendas to you. They have different um, incentives to you. So your incentives as an entrepreneur will be more aligned with the investors that are shareholders in the company. So you could potentially rely upon them for advice and a really um, clear head of thinking about what, what can be done and what can improve the company. Oh, yeah. So is Excalibur bootstrapped or is it funded? Because, you know, you're part of the investor world or you was part of it. So, you know, you would imagine that you could get access to funds quicker than the average startup. I probably could, yeah, but I I bootstrapped it myself the whole way. I just thought, well, to try and um, raise money is going to take time. It's going to be a distraction from building the project itself. I'm, you know, for me, it's a pet project. You know, I, I want this thing to work. I'm very much aware that it's going to be losing money probably for quite a lot of years before it starts to turn a profit. So, you know, it's just a case of working hard, keeping our heads down, trying to figure out how to best uh, build a Web3 application where people can interact with media, and interact with the creators, have a better monetization model, have a sense of ownership of the content, these are all the features that we know are possible with Web3. I don't think anyone out there in the real world has actually really cracked the uh, the monetization system or really found a way to deliver something to customers in a way that's going to be a very sustainable business model. I think we're still very much experimenting with the tools here, and that's what I expect to be doing for at least some time more. But I'm very excited to see what we can build. and Things like Nostra and the other um, applications that are built on top of that, there's just... So many ways in which people are figuring out that they can monetize directly with their creators or with their audience, and they can use the benefits of cryptocurrency in terms of low transaction cost and a, a form of anonymity. It's, it's worth saying that when people do connect with their wallet and make a payment, they're not giving their name and address and, and bank details. But if, if they are doing something that is criminal, then... They can always be traced back to an exchange because every transaction that's ever happened on Bitcoin is on the uh, the Bitcoin ledger. So it's 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 it is traceable. It wasn't at the beginning when nobody was going through an exchange and giving ID. But yeah, you you don't want really want want to be doing criminal things with cryptocurrency. It's a good technology where people can do, do good things, and yeah, it's it does offer you that opportunity to not have your privacy broken that's that's one of the key things about it you know you can use these applications without giving any information about yourself and you also have the comfort of knowing that the incentive system is not to deliver you poor quality content that will get you addicted and make you feel like you want to buy something the incentive is to deliver, deliver you something of high quality where you feel like you've really been given something that's educational or enlightening in some way that makes you want to actually make that payment and have that nft for yourself Okay, you know, I, you know, I want to unpack that a little bit. So you were saying that, you know, with Excalibur, you're bootstrapped, so you're not funded in any way. And obviously, because you're from the investor world, you probably, you know, could have raised some money and you've chosen not to. So because you was, you know, doing investments, 
are you basically in a position where you're you know you're set for life or you've got investments that are bringing money in or are you still an active investor basically how are you maintaining your living standards and living life you know whilst doing excalibur which you know isn't making any money as far as i'm aware right now yeah i mean that's an interesting question i've got a development team of, of three people and develop good developers they're hard to find and they're not cheap but I, i've been paying them for the last year out of my own pocket and i expect mm-hmm. to be paying them for several years more to try and get this project off the ground so you know, it, i'm you know i'm not going to be stressed if that's the way it is and if it doesn't even make up make, make any money in the end it's not going to stress me um but the thing I really want to do is explore this technology, make a contribution to the crypto community in terms of new code, new ideas, new ways of building um, a, an economic system for digital media. I think that's what we have here, really. It's, it's a new economic system for digital media. I mean, we, we've come very far in a very short space of time. It was in the, in the year 2000, I think, that Napster was first created. And that technology has ultimately been the beginning of a process that's taken the cost of delivering digital media people down to pretty much zero and the economic laws are that when that happens that the price of that product goes down to zero as well and so it's been a probably a difficult thing for creators because they feel like they might be having their copyright infringed but what i think is that we need to start to build a new model where content is given away for free and the people that choose to pay for it are empowered by the fact that they can join a community they can become promoters of that content themselves. So if they find amazing new new songs at a very early stage of an artist's career, they can be the people that have, have performed the work of a talent scout. And by putting that content out there, they can be given some form of reward that, that increases in value as that creator becomes more and more famous and more and more successful. But they'll have a digital token that gives them bragging rights to their friends to say, I was there at the beginning. I knew they were going to be good. I bought that copy of their NFT at the early days. And ultimately, that could be worth purely just something they can show to their friends and say, you know, this is what I did. I was there. Okay. So, you know, Excalibur, you know, it's in a, you know, a podcasting platform. It's very interesting because, you know, we're on a podcast right now. So far, yeah. you know, FireDev is just on the more conventional podcast, Spotify, Google, you know, Apple, RSS feeds, you know, that sort of stuff. But, you know, I know a lot of people want to start some sort of podcast, you know, big or small. So how would you recommend about going about starting a podcast would you recommend niche or broad i know that's a question a lot of people have and if it's something that's guest based so you know you'll get you know like fire dev i get guests on you know every single episode there's a you know a different guest how would you go about you know doing that because you know i'm sure you've come across some podcasts and you research this space pretty heavily yeah, I think if you're a new podcaster and you want to learn, I think uh, talking to either you or me about podcasting would be a, uh, a good way uh, to do that. And obviously, you could listen to this podcast. But if you wanted to speak to us directly, then you could click on the link in the description and go through to Excalibur.fm and pay uh, a small amount of money for the NFT, which would give you access to the chat room. And you can speak to either Frahan or myself about how to become a successful podcaster. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the things, you know, if you do have access to someone, obviously, you know, like Simon says, you know, you know, you can message him, you can, I'm always open. So if you want to ask me having, you know, done this, this will be episode 47, I believe, once it airs, you know, in a few weeks from recording it. And, you know, you learn a lot, you learn a lot of stuff doing it, you know, consistently, there's a new episode every single week, Thursday, 5am GMT, there's a lot of things that if I was going back, I would give myself, you know, advice. I'm actually thinking about doing an episode where it is just me talking and, you know, one, you know, going over some of the lessons and highlights of like, let's say 50 or 60 episodes, whenever that might be. Plus also advice for others of, you know, want to, want to start the podcast, say, you know, do this, make sure you don't do that because that's just a waste of your time, you know, save those few hours or save those few weeks. So yeah, definitely try and reach out to people and, Obviously, it'd be great if you could reach out to, you know, Joe Rogan or, you know, Lex Friedman or any of those guys, but probably you're not going to be able to unless you're within that circle. And, and at that point, you probably don't need that much help to be starting a podcast anyway. Mm-hmm. Reach out to the more small to medium, you know, size ones, the ones that the average person hasn't heard of. But like I said, they've got 50 episodes, they've got 100 episodes. You look at them and they've got like 100, 200 episodes and you've never heard of them. Great, you know, reach out to them. They'll probably just be happy to have someone reach out that looks like a fan and they'll be happy to, you know, pop me an email or maybe even jump on a call because I, yeah. I definitely know I would and I think Simon would as well. So th- that's the best way to get advice. Definitely. I think that that's a very key thing you picked up on there is um, when, when you're starting out, don't go and uh, start messaging Joe Rogan and ask to be on his <laughs> podcast, you know, because in reality, he gets a lot of inbound and he's probably not going to be looking for you specifically unless you've got some very special characteristic that nobody else has. So what you probably want to do is look at your niche, whatever you're talking about. Maybe you're talking about tractors or about daffodils or whatever your podcast is about. Obviously, Frahan and I are talking about Web3 and that's what we want to be uh, broadcasting about, but find your niche and connect with people in that space and people that are at a similar stage of their journey to yourself. They, they will probably be very open to speaking to you. Um, maybe even people that are slightly more advanced in their journey. They'll be open. They'll want to talk with you. They'll want to team up with you in, in making content. And yeah, you could experiment with uh, doing one. If you've got a really strong topic you want to talk about for an hour all on your own, then definitely go ahead and do it. But I think one of the uh, the joys of podcasting is how people can bounce off uh, each other with a conversation. And I'm a big fan of audio books, but I often feel like the style of an audio book being read could actually learn a great deal from the podcasting scene in terms of having a bit of music there and having multiple different voices that are communicating with each other rather than just having that one person read out the whole audio book. But yeah, some some situations, you know, maybe if it's, non-fiction that might be more appropriate so really depends but i think yeah we're still at such an early stage of this new media that i'd say experimentation is probably one of the key things to do as well because you might try doing something that nobody else has thought of doing and you might find it really works and that could be the thing that takes you into the big time yeah plus you might also find that you know the opposite that you just don't enjoy it like you have this idea that oh you want to talk about video games on your podcast because you love video games but when you start getting down to it you know you find it a hassle having to you know do an episode a week or episode every couple of weeks talking about video games instead of just sitting down and playing video games it's like streaming for example i know i've tried a bit of video game streaming and i've read this from other people as well is that most of the time you'll make little to no money on it 
uh, and you're actually be systematic and you'll be in a chore-like fashion that unless you really enjoy streaming, you know, don't do it. Just play, you know, your game because otherwise you're just, or you'll be streaming it and then you're not going to get much traction for most of the time. And at that point, you know, you just got to enjoy, you know, playing it and not be too concerned about the, say the business growth aspect of it. So yeah, definitely, you know, experiment because like Simon said, you you might realize you don't want to do this for 50 episodes, 100 episodes, 1,000 episodes. And it might be a change of topic. It might be you don't want to do it on your own. Or, you know, you don't want to do it with the same person every single week. You want different guests. You know, whatever that format is, figure that out. You might figure out, okay, I want this to be video-based. Like, Fire so far is audio-based, and I'm 100% happy with that. I do imagine in the future doing some video-based episodes, but I like the, you know, relaxed nature of, not knowing that Simon is either dressed up or in his underwear. Like, I don't know. And I, it, it's the thing I don't care. <laughs> like, it's a, we're on a podcast and we're just relaxed, chill, and we're talking about, you know, Web3 in this case. You know, figure that out. So you figure out what you're interested in and what you think you could actually long-term talk about. That's exactly right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So if somebody wants to, you know, put their podcast on Excalibur, what's the exact process and what's the exact sort of fee structure? Um, well, you basically just go to Excalibur.fm, click on upload, choose your title, your description, your thumbnail picture, um, your MP3 file and your Solana wallet address. And when you click on publish, the uh, system will take a small amount of Solana from you to pay for your NFT storage and the storage of your media on Arwe, which is a decentralized media storage platform. And yeah, that's it. You'll have your NFT created. You'll have a link that you can share with your audience and they can mint a copy of that NFT. As I say, 100% of the revenue minus a small Solana fee will come through to your wallet every time somebody buys one of those NFTs. So it's worth broadcasting it far and wide on social media, telling everyone about the virtues of Excalibur.fm. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the revenue you, the money you make, you keep that. What are the different ways of making money through a podcast that you create as an NFT not on Excalibur, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're going to create an NFT of a podcast, then definitely do it on Excalibur. Um, that is the best place to do it. But um, yeah, I mean, the NFT world. Again, we're just beginning to discover this, you know, this new technology. There's going to be so many different use cases, you know, in terms of people doing certificates and uh, share certificates. You know, I mean, ultimately, a blockchain is a registry, and NFTs are ways of registering content effectively. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin is money. You know, it's a very good monetary instrument, probably the best we've ever had. And we're even now starting to build NFTs on top of Bitcoin. Ultimately, if they deliver the same level of utility as NFTs on Solana or Ethereum, then people will want to use the ones on Bitcoin. If they, they can make them as low cost, then that, again, that's what's very important. People want to have reliable, secure registrations of digital media. And Bitcoin may end up being the best place to do it. But we will see. Watch this space. It's all going to be changing, that's for sure. 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, Excalibur, like any other blockchain, your know, company project, you know, worth their salt, you have a light paper, you have a white paper as well. So, you know, first, can you explain to the audience, you know, what they are? Because I think some people might be thinking, you know, what's a light paper, what's a white paper, you know, you know, what they offer, plus also the importance of having them. Yeah, I mean, the white paper is your kind of full uh, description of what you want to build or what you are building or what you have built. It's something that Satoshi Nakamoto released in October 2008. He released a white paper that described the peer-to-peer payment system that he was working on. In uh, January uh, 2009, three months later, he launched that that application that he'd built. It was based on the the vision that was detailed in the white paper. So it's something that gives people a taste of what you're building, Potentially, if you want people to collaborate with you, then that could be a good way to get people interested. And a light paper really is just a short version of that. It's just something that's scaled down, easier to read. Um, maybe it doesn't give all the detail that you might want to know, but if you read, read the light paper and you really love it, then you'll probably go and read the white paper as well. But yeah, that's that's the kind of standard that's, uh, that's is really accepted in this industry. Whatever you're doing, why not write about it? Tell people what you're doing, get them interested. Okay. And the, the papers for Excalibur, did you write them yourself, you know, and also advice on top of that, how do you recommend, you know, going about writing them? If this is the first time somebody's doing it, what should you include? You know, what should you not include? Uh, you want to be inclu- including the objective and the detail of how you're going to achieve that objective. Um, the, the thing to do is try and keep it as simple as possible uh, and, and still try and explain what you're doing. So, Keep out the jargon, um, keep your sentences not too long, um, try not to go off the point too much. You, you might write it all down, the thing to do is to then sleep on it, read through it the next day, rewrite it all again. Probably do that seven or eight times to end up getting something that's really good quality that people are really going to be able to read. If it flows through, then people will start reading and they'll, they'll get through and be interested and intrigued by what you're doing and get to the end. And, they will become your product champions. They will be the people that will talk about it with other people and express their interest in what you're doing and getting the word around. That's what it is. You know, I mean, Bitcoin had zero marketing budget. It really only succeeded because people understood what it was doing. They understood the benefits because that had been clearly articulated by Satoshi Nakamoto in the white paper. That's what made them want to use that software. That's what made them want to be part of the network. They went and told other people, and that's what built the Bitcoin network to what it is today. Okay, so you mentioned that Excalibur uses the Solana network. You know, what is the rest of the tech stack? You know, Excalibur uses because obviously, you know, you got the web app, you got the website, you got anything else as well. Solana, you know, won't do all of that. It's more just the blockchain network. So, what's your full tech stack, and like, what's the reasoning behind going down whatever route that is for the more technical people out there? Yeah, we're built using React. Um, yeah, the, the React front end is very much standard within this industry. You could use Angular. Ang- Angular tends to be more of a corporate kind of uh, software. Uh, React is the one that most people use in this space because it's a lot easier to teach yourself React, a lot easier than, than Angular. So a lot of people in this space are self-taught. Uh, a lot of people are fully experienced with a computer studies degree and they've worked in in traditional finance and they've decided to make the switch over but there's plenty of people out there that are just so fascinated they've taught themselves through youtube videos and exercises to learn to code and and build systems so 
Yeah, React seems to be the default because it's it's a hobbyist combined with the professionals. Everyone's trying to create something interesting. Okay, and you know, was this was Excalibur created by the people you've hired? You know, or was it contracted out initially, or did you have an involvement on the technical side? You know, the coding, the developing side. How was that handled? Well, I mean, I've read the code for uh, I'm in the line of code for eighteen years, so. I know well enough that I'm, I'm probably not the perfect person to be writing the code for this application. So I've gone out there and gone around hackathons and found uh, some really good developers. Um, also gone through recruiters and drawn on my old contacts from back in the days when I used to be a developer. And I've brought together a good team um, of, of people that are really capable. Um, and I know that their time being spent on developing is worth a whole lot more than my time spent on developing. So my time is spent on really kind of trying to find good marketing people to market this product and bring the whole team together and, and manage the whole process and try and keep it all on the rails. Okay. And because it's on Solana, have you ever thought about not using an alternative blockchain or cryptocurrency, you know, for example, but using multiple blockchains potentially? You know, we are. Possibly we are. As we speak, we are in the process of developing um, Bitcoin Lightning on the platform. So you can pay with Bitcoin ah. Lightning. Yeah, now that we're getting NFTs on Bitcoin, I think the whole thing is going to be possible to multi-chain. So I think, yeah, in, in, in the long run, the, the cryptocurrency that's going to hold its value better than anything else is going to be Bitcoin. So if we are telling people that they need to have a certain cryptocurrency to be on this platform, I would much rather tell them to use Bitcoin than any other form of currency because that's the one that I'm confident will hold its value. Okay. And you know, you know, we're talking about you know Bitcoin and that's the one that you think is the best one to be using ideally. You know, if somebody's new to the space, what resources do you recommend for a beginner to go and you know learn more about Bitcoin, blockchain as well, and also what sort of you know platform because there's so many platforms out there that you can use to you know leverage you know cryptocurrencies and blockchains but we've seen over the years with platforms like Mount Gox, BitConnect, you know the you know the stuff with the crypto queen all that sort of stuff that's just free to mention that there's you, you know you got to be very careful so like what are some of the resources yeah. and platforms that you recommend I'd say the first thing to know if you're a new person in this industry is that a lot of people lose a lot of money in this industry the main reason they lose money is because they don't understand. So if you want to invest in this sector, the first thing to invest is your time. And invest your time in learning as much as possible as you can. So Bitcoin is a good place to start. That was the first cryptocurrency. So I would recommend you try to find good YouTube videos, good podcasts, good books where you can read and learn about this subject. There is so much to learn. It's going to take you a lot of time to really understand it. But if you're anything like me, then you will get very fascinated by it and you'll end up spending a lot of time doing it, boring your friends and family to death with the thing that you're reading about because you find it so fascinating. But that's the journey. And I, I recommend you start on that journey, start learning before you really put your money at risk because there's many, many mistakes that can be made and many of those are made because you don't know enough about what you're dealing with or because other people try to make you think that they know more. They try to think that you need to give them your private keys. Never give your private keys to anyone. If you do, you're basically just giving your money away. 
So yeah, it's it's really very important. And you know, if if you want to be successful either in working in this sector or in investing in this sector, it's all about doing the work. That's the whole proof of work system. You know, you are much more likely to be succeed if you do the work. You learn how it works. You look at the history of how this thing evolved. Look at what's gone on in the past, and you try to really spend a lot of time understanding what could happen in the future because it is going to be a technology of the future. But it doesn't mean you'll necessarily make any money out of it by investing. It really requires a belief that it's in that it's going to succeed in the future, and trying to figure out where the opportunities are, and trying to see where the pitfalls are because there are many. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's it's one of those things you know you got to be careful with. I think that's the same with any technology, anything new that you get into. But because money is involved, you got to be extra careful. Obviously, you know when you're on social media, you know you got to be a bit careful, you know, with it as well. But the you know the consequences can be so much you know greater with something like cryptocurrencies and crypto platforms just because you know you are putting money into it. And, you know, you've got to have a bit of common sense about you. You know, if somebody's promising X amount of return guaranteed per month, per year, you know, like what BitConnect and a bunch of other, you know, platforms we're doing. If it's too, if it looks too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. It's, you know, it's, it's just the reality of it. If it looks too good to be true, then it probably is. Yeah, and like one of the things that you can do to help yourself is just educate yourself. And I'm not even talking about direct education in cryptocurrency. I'm just talking about history, read books, you know, learn, you know, improve your knowledge base, learn about, you know, you know, away 2000, you know, the dot-com bubble, the tulip bubble, you know, you know, the Great Recession, you know, just old past history. You read enough about that, you, you'll see something and you'll think that's literally just what somebody was doing 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They packaged it up as Web3 now or, as you know, AI or whatever it is, but it is just the same. You'll, you'll see through the bullshit. Most of the people that are falling for it, if not all of them, are people that are for the most part uneducated and again like i'm saying it doesn't have to be just in the space because you can see the common traits in the business model and the common traits in the individuals you know perpetrating these business models throughout history so you don't even need to understand the technology to understand that somebody's saying you're gonna get this that don't sound right because you know that's far better than what a true like trillion dollar you know asset you know companies that have over a trillion dollar assets under management is able to do does that sound right to me mm, probably not yep yeah i think that's it basically yeah if it looks too good to be true then it probably is i think we should probably end on that one it's very good advice oh yeah for sure so you know for people that are interested to hear more about, you know, what you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch, you know, to see what you're about. Plus, because you have a podcasting platform, do you yourself have a podcast on there? And, you know, obviously I'll get the link if you do for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Come and find us on LinkedIn. We are on there, Excalibur.fm. You can find me, Simon Smith, on LinkedIn. We've got podcasts on there. And they're, they're the same podcasts that are on the Excalibur platform. So you can just listen to them on there. It's all free content. It's open source. So, yeah, always happy to interact with people. Come and chat to us.
Uh, yeah, that's some go get all the links of you and I'll put it in the description. So that's all my, you know, more specific questions around, you know, the Excalibur platform, what you're doing. I always have a few, you know, rapid fire, you know, generic questions, you know, fun questions that I ask. Uh, but before we get on to that, it, because obviously what you're doing is a startup, it's very new, it's very interesting. Is there anything specific that I haven't spoke about that you feel like would be valuable for the listeners? No, I think we've covered, we've covered a whole lot there. It's been really uh, very exhaustive. I think yeah, that's um, it's been a very good podcast, and we've covered a lot of the important points for people who are listening. Okay, so yeah, so let's do the rapid fire, you know, questions. Would you rather run and and, and this will be an interesting one because you're you're running a company now. Would you rather run a ten person company or a one thousand person company, and why? Ten person. Which one did you say? Ten person company. Okay, why? Just a brief why. Um, the thought of running a thousand-person company just stresses me to death. Yeah, there's no way I would want that level of responsibility. <laughs> Fair enough. Would you rather have uh, you're in the UK, so we'll stick with British pounds, five million up front, or half a million a year for the rest of your life? And quick reason why? Uh, five million up front. The reason why is inflation is going to be rife and half a million a year will be worth very little in a few years' time. Okay. And, you know, favourite board game, favourite video game, if you're into video game, then favourite movie? Favourite board game is Monopoly. Video game is on my phone, Forge of Empires, which I've been playing for far too long. And favourite movie is Groundhog Day. Okay. And, you know, talking about board games, are there any, like, sort of cryptocurrency blockchain board game that you know of even if they're not directly linked into like a blockchain but like based around that idea of it like monopoly based around the idea of property for example they are coming out yeah you're going to be seeing them on uh on yeah bitcoin lightning will be enabling probably a, a decentralized version of monopoly probably many other things will exist on that platform Okay, I mean, that definitely sounds exciting. I think we'll have to have a few games of that. Okay, final question. It's a two-parter. Does money buy you happiness? And what does a good life mean to you? I think money doesn't buy you happiness, but it helps. And certainly having no money at all can make you very sad. Um, having a good life is all about having the right people in your life, good friends, good family, people that you can trust, and making the right decisions for yourself. Okay, sounds good. So, yeah, enjoy the podcast today. Thank you for coming on, Simon. Really valuable for me and the listeners as well. So, like I said, I'll put all the links to contact Simon and, you know, to, you know, check out Excalibur in the description. Thank you for coming on, and I hopefully I hope you enjoy the podcast as well. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to speaking to you again soon. Sounds good. Take care, everyone, and enjoy the next week's episode of Five Dev. Bye-bye.